Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world, with the MD, Dr. DJ Verrett. Greetings, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and today we're talking with Lisa Dolge, a partner at the law firm of Lewis Brisbois, about the Cures Act and information blocking. We're going to take a quick break and talk to Lisa right after this. Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. We're talking to Chris Hansen today from Alliance Bank. Chris, tell us about your bank. DJ, thanks so much for having us. So Alliance Bank is a 95-year Texas-only bank. My office in McKinney services Collin County and surrounding counties. Our three primary niches I would identify are commercial real estate, residential real estate, and healthcare lending. And how can physicians learn more about the bank? My email address is chansen, which is C-H-A-N-S-E-N at alliancebank.com. And check them out on the web, alliancebank.com. Welcome back to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and today we're talking with Lisa Dolge, a partner at the law firm of Lewis Brisbois about the Cures Act and information blocking. Lisa, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to use some of your legal expertise today to talk about something that, at least for me, kind of came on the scene at the beginning of November, but had, I guess, been percolating for several years now. And it's the information blocking parts of the Cures Act. Can you kind of explain what that all means for physicians just from a high level? And then we'll kind of talk about some of the some of the inner points there. Sure. So um, back in 2016, Congress passed the what they called the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, referred to as Cures Act. And it took until earlier this year for them to issue some rules, actually kind of giving adding meat um, to to the statute itself and explaining how it's going to apply, when it's going to apply. And uh, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology um, ONC is the one that issued the final rule. Um, and it basically, the, the statute kind of has two components. One is, it well, the general purpose is to prevent information blocking, um, and that's patient information. And um, the two components are, one, the statute uh, wants all of the EMR systems and um, providers um, of those systems to make sure that those um, systems can operate with each other. So if a hospital wants to switch from one AMR system to another, for example, they can easily do so. Um, so it kind of sets up technical requirements um, for that. And then the second component of the statute is that it requires um, healthcare providers to provide patients with access to their EMR, um, to their medical records um, easily. So um, those are kind of the two main portions of the statute. So I heard you say EMR. Does this apply to physician practices that don't have an EMR? No. So the practice does not have um, an electronic medical record system, then the statute would not apply. Now, I know some of the hospitals around here had announced that starting November 1st, they would make all medical records immediately available to patients through their portal. Does the statute have a time frame for providing that access, 
or is the immediate access was that just a way that the hospitals were dealing with the act what what is what is the actual rule yes there is a particular deadline um it, originally the uh, the statute was supposed to um become effective or the rules were supposed to become effective on november 2nd and so uh, what you were describing in all likelihood is the hospital's preparation for that deadline the deadline has been moved um, so the rules are not going to become effective or become enforceable until April 5th of next year. Um, so we have a little bit more time to, uh, or the, the providers have a little bit more time to figure out um, their compliance issues and how to make sure that they're compliant with the rules. Now, within the rules, is there a time frame for making the patient data available? In other words, is it within 24 hours of when it's created or within a week? Or is there, um, is there anything within the rules that defines that time frame at this point? No specific timeline. Um, and there are, look, there, there are a lot of gaps in the statute and the rules. It still kind of is half-baked um, for, for the lack of a, of a better um, phrase. Um, the OIG and ONC are still saying that they're looking at, you know, different rules that they're going to issue related to enforcement. So there's still a lot of guidance that's going to be issued before the rules are going to become effective in April. And maybe perhaps one of those rules is going to specify a, a deadline for, for um, providing the record. Now, if you have an electronic medical record but don't have an outward-facing patient portal, uh, is does this require you to develop that patient portal? Yes. So that's one of the kind of main focuses of the statute is to allow patients to um, access their electronic records, um, you know, and, and that would require a patient portal. Um, the good news is that uh, most of the companies that provide EMR systems already have a patient portal functionality um, or are going to build one in because the statute applies not just to physicians and hospitals, it applies to um, IT, healthcare IT uh, providers and developers. So anyone who develops or provides an EMR system, it has an obligation to, uh, to provide a patient portal will have an obligation to do that. I've seen discussions in some of the, the physician online forums about concerns that physicians have with providing all of medical records to patients, um, particularly in, in cases of new cancer diagnoses or potentially abuse situations. Are there exceptions in the, the current rules where information can be withheld? Yes, there are currently um, eight exceptions. Each of them has several conditions that have to be met. Um, the details can be found on the ONC website. But yes, one of the exceptions is, is a preventing harm exception. And so um, a provider who doesn't provide information in order to prevent harm to a patient um, would not, be, would not be liable for information blocking, would not be penalized. So doctors are going to have to exercise some discretion in those situations where they think that the release of the information um, can harm a patient. 
um, they will be able to withhold that information. And, and is that taken on a case-by-case -case basis or can a policy be developed in the office to encompass all of the medical records? There should be policy, absolutely. And so um, between now and April, what every physician or, or should be doing or a hospital system is actually taking a look at what system that they have now um, for release of patient information, what policies they have and modifying them to build in some of these exceptions. For example, you know, if uh, a policy could be, if there is evidence or suspicion of domestic abuse from a spouse, perhaps releasing information via a um, certain information via a, a patient portal where the abusive spouse can access it could put the patient in, in danger. So in those situations where there's a suspicion of domestic abuse, maybe the policy is that you do not um, release that information through the patient portal. But it has to be a consistent application. Whatever policy um, there is in place, it should be consistently applied um, in a non-discriminatory manner. One of the other concerns I've seen is a HIPAA concern. Um, with sharing data with third-party vendors. Is there anything in the regulations as written that provides some cover for physicians who may provide uh, access to third-party vendors in good faith, but that third-party vendor ends up violating HIPAA? Has that been addressed at this point? Not at this point. Uh, we have a generic statement in the rules and in the statute that, you know, the, the parties are not, the covered parties by the statute um, are not required to do anything that would violate HIPAA. And so I think the same thought process would apply um, that, that applied before the statute. If the release of records could possibly, you know, violate HIPAA, HIPAA then, then it should be done. Let's talk a little bit about penalties for violations. Um, you mentioned a, a whole hodgepodge of letters. Who is actually responsible for policing the, the rules and regulations around information blocking in the Cures Act? So the OIG right now has been charged by Congress uh, with investigating the information blocking practices. Um, and so that, that will be the, the government agency that will be in charge of that. Um, and they issued a proposed rule that among other things, OIG can impose um, civil monetary penalties up to 1 million per violations on those um, actors that, that uh, have been found to knowingly interfere with the access user exchange of, of electronic information. Now those penalties only apply, so the statute itself covers, you know, everyone, physicians, hospitals, uh, pharmacies, and um, IT providers or developers. So this penalties would apply to IT providers. Um, they would not apply to physicians. Um, the, the rules regarding what penalties could apply to physicians have not been issued yet. Um, and all we know is that, you know, the agency is going to come up with some program that is supposed to disincentivize physicians from violating information blocking rules um, and figure out who will be enforcing those rules against them, possibly state agencies, Texas Medical Board or, or um, its equivalent in other states. 
But at this point, those haven't been haven't been written. Is that correct? That's right. Um, any thoughts as to if the the implementation implementation date in April is going to hold? Has there been any guidance as to how firm the the April date is going to be? You know, it's kind of consistent with a lot of deadlines um, that have been moved because of COVID. Everyone is kind of posturing to thinking that maybe by March we'll be done with COVID. Um, it depends on what happens in the fall or in the winter with that. If we have another spike that, you know, really um, creates a lot of problems for the healthcare industry and takes away their resources to uh, from, from implementing, you know, compliance um, with the statute, um, then we could see that, that deadline being moved again. Is there, I also saw in the, in the act, there was some difference in what information needed to be provided um, early on versus a longer term um, allowance for more information. Could, could you explain that a little bit better? Sure. So now, or not now, but when the rules become effective in, in April, um, what the information that will have to be provided include, you know, consultation notes, um, images, lab reports, procedure notes, um, and then the timeline for provision of all sort of medical electronic information is set um, for some point in 2022. So we have some time to make sure that um, all of that information is accessible through a patient portal. Lisa, thanks so much for the information. Um, I guess the the real take-home story, though, is there's a lot more to come in the rules and regulations around this. Is that fair? That is very fair, yes. We've been talking with Lisa Dolge, partner at Lewis Brisbois, about the information blocking portions of the Cures Act. You're listening to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Thanks for listening. Until next time, make it an awesome week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask Me MD, Medical School for the Real World with Dr. DJ Verrett. If you have a question or an idea for a show, send us an email at questions at askmemdpodcast.com. The contents of the podcast do not constitute any type of professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, and do not create any type of professional relationship between the audience and presenters. No person listening to any episode of Ask Me MD should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content of a podcast without first seeking appropriate professional advice, nor should the information be used as a substitute for professional advice. W.J. Sonye expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on any or all contents of its podcasts.